I wrote this to you guys yesterday. Some of you saw it on our community page. As Grace Point is moving forward with clarity regarding our identity as a progressive Christian community, we're thankful that our progressivism and our Christianity, both of which mean a lot to us, these two things, progressivism and Christianity, are not at odds with one another. Actually, the exact opposite is true. We believe that Christianity at its core is inherently progressive in nature. Built deep into the long tradition of Christianity is the idea, the idea of a continually unfolding truth, a mystery that is forever being revealed. Now, as is true of any Christian or rather religious spiritual tradition, whether that's Hinduism that our friend came from, Buddhism, Christianity, Sikhism, Judaism, any spiritual religious tradition carries these three things. Christianity is no exception. Every distinct religious tradition carries its own distinct narrative or story. And we know our narrative, right? Adam, Noah, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Egypt, Moses, Joshua, Judges, Kings, Divided Kingdom, Exile, Jesus, Apostles. We have a narrative. We not only have a narrative, we have a second thing. We have a distinct vocabulary, a lexicon of terms that are important to us. Holiness, repentance, trinity, spirit. We have words that have overlap with other religions, but we have words that are distinct just to us. And they are our lexicon, and we use them. Some people call that Christianese. The third thing that we carry as a distinctive is a set of symbols and or sacraments. Per that last distinctive, again, narrative, glossary, and symbols. Per that last distinction of symbols and sacraments, we have identified as progressive Christians five symbol sacraments that are distinct to us and that are central to us of the many that we've all enjoyed and perhaps still do, but five that are central. The first is Jesus of Nazareth. As I said a few weeks ago, you can't have a McDonald's without a Big Mac. Now, you don't have to have a Big Mac. But, Brian, you don't start a restaurant, franchise with a group, and then take away their menu. And at the heart of our menu as progressive Christians, as Christians, is Jesus of Nazareth. The second distinct symbol or sacrament, and a sacrament being these things, could be a historical figure like Jesus that are mediums of grace through which we believe spirit flows. But the second distinct symbol that we carry is the Bible. It's hard to be... Christian without the Bible. Um, the first 200 years of liberal Christianity, there's really been a wrestling match in mainline churches and mainline academia of how to reconcile ourselves to the Bible. We had a long history of reading the Bible very narrowly, painfully, and almost abusively. And the first 200 years of liberal Christianity, we haven't known how to reconcile that. And there has at times been almost a jettisoning, jettisoning of Scripture. We just are almost embarrassed of it and want to get away from it because... There's just a lot in there that's difficult to understand and can even be used in a pro, you know, horrifically. And yet the reality is you really can't do Christianity and 
take away this thing called the Bible, both the Hebrew Scriptures and the Christian Scriptures, the Old and New Testament. The third thing that is a, a distinct symbol that is at the heart of our faith is baptism. We are a baptizing people. Christianity without baptism would be an odd thing. We are a baptizing people. The fourth thing is Holy Communion, the Lord's Supper, Communion, the Eucharist. Um, I, I, although there are Christian denominations, I was very closely associated with a Christian denomination growing up that did not receive the Lord's Supper. They were called spiritual communionists. They believed that communion as a rite, as a sacrament, had been usurped and replaced substitutionarily by just an abiding presence of Jesus at all times. So these folk were spiritual communionists. I preached for many of their churches. But apart from just a few like that, most have decided that communion is at the center. That's the fourth. The fifth thing is the Christian calendar. The Christian calendar and this sacramental chronology of seasons and days. Advent, Christmas, Christmastide, Epiphany, Ordinary Time, Lent, which we are moving into this Wednesday with the beginning of uh, Lent and Ash Wednesday service. Lent, Easter, Eastertide, Pentecost, and again into the rhythm of Ordinary Time. Jesus, the Bible, Baptism, Communion, and the Calendar. Seasons and days that we mark as holy. To that end, I just mentioned this Wednesday, and I hope all of you will be here. We should pack the place out for these types of days. Uh, this Wednesday marks the beginning of the Christian season of Lent, the 40 non-Sunday days leading up to Easter. There's actually 47 days of, of the Lenten season, but seven of them are extracted as little Easter's, the Sundays. So... I remember when I first realized as a former Pentecostal evangelical, as I began to experience the season of Lent, I, I just thought we were supposed to fast and torture ourselves all the way up to Easter. And I was five or six years into that before I realized you could break the fast and eat fried food and sugar on Sunday. And I thought, man, I don't have to, I got to calculating in my head, I've done seven extra days for the last six years, I get a free Lenten season coming up. So, this marks the beginning of the season of Lent, and Mel, in curating our services, has really put together what's going to be a spectacular service Wednesday night. It's going to be a service of reflection and introspection, and really as progressives trying to reappropriate how we feel in the 21st century about these common traditional ideas that we've held for 2,000 years, these experiences that we've been having, and how we can have them new today. Um, at the conclusion of the service, we're going to be receiving the Eucharist, the Lord's Supper, communion, Holy Communion. We're going to be receiving the elements. And I just want to speak a little while today because there's been a lot of question about communion and how we feel about communion. And I just want to speak on behalf of you a little bit here and then just spend some time uh, looking at this together. But this particular sacrament of the Christian church, this one of the big five for us, uh, it carries in its tradition deep meaning for many of you. Communion is something that some of you even have a difficult time experiencing a Sunday service without. Maybe that's because of your background. Maybe that's just because of your per personal spiritual disposition toward the elements. But... 
communion carries deep meaning for a lot of people. I've said for years, in the midst of all the songs that get dry and the sermons that get dusty, I, I don't know that communion has ever worn through for me. Every time we break the bread, it, it moves me. That's just, that's been my experience. And I grew up in a tradition where we only took communion once a year. Some people consider that a devaluing of communion. It was the opposite for us. We esteemed it so highly that it became one of those sacrosanct things that you scarcely touch frequently because you save it for these really holy days. The downside of it was for us, it was also a terribly scary moment. We, we got together at church on New Year's Eve and would have a four to five hour service going into the New Year's and there would be confession and contrition. Uh, sometimes the confession would be open and then there would be this long, Carol, this long ominous buildup to the moment right at midnight when we would take the Lord's Supper. And you knew, Kelly, if you hadn't got all the sin out of your heart that God just might smite you dead. And I remember that ominous feeling. And it was not a good feeling. Somehow, in the years following that, uh, when I was at Christ Church with Brother Hardwick, the, the practice began to be redeemed for me. I also want to say, for people who've experienced what I just explained, there are others that this religious rite, this thing called communion, carries a lot of baggage and confusion and or confusion. And for a lot of you, maybe it even carries a bit of both. So we will observe the Lord's Supper here. It will be a part, it will be one of the linchpins. It is not what makes us progressive. How we receive it will be our progressivism. It is what makes us Christian. These are five linchpins within the franchise and on the schedule and the menu of the Christian church. Communion has been a part of the church's experience from the moment our records, our earliest extant records say, on the eve of Jesus' crucifixion, as a good Jewish person, he was observing one of the linchpins of the Jewish faith, which was the Passover meal, remember? So it's very interesting to me that one of our linchpin sacraments was birthed out of a linchpin sacrament of our mother faith. I personally believe that the idea of our sacrament substituting and replacing the old sacrament is a mistake that we've made in the first 2,000 years. And Brian, things like you leading us in the Seder meal reminds us that we are a part of a Judeo-Christian faith. We are Abrahamic. We are engrafted into it, that Jewish tree. We are not another tree. Out of a sacrament of a sister mother religion, was birthed something that became a sacrament for us. But on the eve of his crucifixion, it does not seem that it was first born to be a rite or a sacrament or a symbol or a perpetual experience of the church. It seems that this young 32 to 33-year-old young man who was soon to be torturously martyred gathered with his disciples and said to them, and this so often we, we miss the pathos of this moment, he knew he was soon to die. He would leave this meal. And the Bible said he would go out to an olive press called Gethsemane. 
with the weight on his 32-year-old, 33-year-old shoulders of a torturous murder that was just to come. The Bible said he would leave this meal and he would get to Gethsemane with his friends. He would separate from the 12 as Judas departed to betray him. He would separate from the 11 as the 11 refined to the three. And then in the eyes of James, John, and Peter, his closest friends, he said, would you just go with me a little further? And he took them a little further. And the Bible said, finally, he knew, as every person has to know, the last of the journey was for him and him alone. There's only so far that friends and family can go with you and your spiritual work. There is always that rock. There is always that place where you have to set even those closest to you and say, abide here and watch with me. And then the Bible said he went a little further. And being in agony, he fell on his face and began to groan. It was so torturous that as he groaned, heaven broke with sympathy. And the compassion flowed and an angel as an emissary of God's spirit was sent down to wrap Jesus up and to comfort him there. Much like King in Memphis on the eve of his own death, there was a foreboding intuition that pain was coming. And the Bible said he was so broken that for three hours he literally implored God, please don't let this happen to me. Please. I hear King's echo on that evening in Memphis speaking to the sanitation workers as he said, I do not want to die. I want to live and see my children grow up. This was the moment. And his body broke and cardiovascularly something happened. At least in the story there is this powerful image of blood beginning to seep through the pores of his skin. Well, it was just just prior to that moment full of emotion that Jesus looked at his disciples at the end of the Passover meal, a meal that was celebrating deliverance, a meal that was celebrating the miracle of water opening, a meal that was celebrating the miracle of returning to a promised land. At the height of that moment, he took remnants of a piece of bread. And I'm sure they were looking at the food the way we often look at food after we're full. But as Brian has taught us in the Seder, this bread that he took was very meaningful, rooted in their faith. He took this Passover bread and tellingly he broke it. Still a part of the Seder, still meaningful within their Jewish faith, he broke it with the addition, perhaps not of another religion, not of another faith, but of a person's own individual experience. And perhaps there is no greater thing we can do with any religious experience than just appropriate it to our own life. And he took, Brian, that Seder 1,400-year-old tradition, and he took that bread and said, this is not just another church service. This is my body. See, if these songs aren't our songs, if these words aren't our words, then why are we gathering here? If this faith is not our faith, if it doesn't make a difference on Tuesday afternoon, what are we doing? He looked at them and said, this isn't just the Passover, this is my body. And he gave it to them and he said, I want you to take this and I want you to eat it. Why, they must have thought, why do we do this? And 
As soon as he had given them the bread, he took the cup of wine, again, rooted in tradition and hundreds of years of sacramental gift. And he said, this is more than a theology, and this is more than something that our ancestors have done that we do because it makes us sociologically this group. He said, this is my blood. And I honestly think until the bread and the wine become our body and our blood, that we are missing the point. More on that in a moment. They lifted the cup, and as they took it, the earliest gospel record is the gospel of Mark, and Mark does not give this. The second earliest is Matthew. The third earliest is Luke. Luke seems to be the gospel that had the influence of Paul. And Luke's gospel, in accordance with something Paul would write later, does say that as Jesus looked at them, he said there are a couple of meanings. The first is, when you eat this flesh, when you eat this bread, you are eating my body which is given for you. So immediately the question begs, how was his body being given for them? On, on what wise was his body given and in what way did his body impact them, especially his dead body, his broken body? This is my blood, he said, that's given. And he said something very profound that we could tease out over the next few weeks if we had time, but you can tease it out at home. He said, this blood is given, and these things are symbols of the covenant that I'm making with you. And then Luke's gospel adds this line. Jesus said, and however often you do this, as often as you do this, you do this to remember me. You do this to, purpose statement, in order that, for the purpose of, you do this to remember me. A young man, fully flesh, fully human, looked at a group of friends and said, I have got to go now. Do me the favor of not forgetting me. And perhaps even do yourself the favor of not forgetting me. Communion's initial purpose was to underscore a covenantal relationship between Jesus and his followers. And secondly, and likened to that, communion was originally to help us not forget Jesus. Well, interestingly, he was crucified the next day. And in the middle of the story, there was lots of forgetting because I think at the heart of what Christianity has called the fall for the years, I no longer believe the fall is this thing of separating from God, you know, incurring the wrath of God. I think if there is such a thing as fallenness, it is our sense of separation from God and maybe not even our sense, but our psychological played outness of separation from God, the practical atheism that so many of us live in from time to time. There was a lot of forgetting even after that night when he said, as often as you do this, do this to remember me. He left there and went out to the garden and it was in the garden that Judas came with 300 men, they abducted him all of his disciples fled, and as Jesus was standing uh, in Jerusalem a few hours later in the kangaroo court led by Caius and, uh, Caiaphas and Annas, the high priest, the Bible says that 
uh, Peter was standing there and a woman walked up to him around the campfire and said, aren't you one of this guy's followers? And the Bible says Peter said, no, I, I don't know him at all. There was a lot of forgetting. The second time she said, no, I, th I think you are one of the followers. Your speech betrays you. You're a Galilean. He said, no, I, I, I don't know what you're talking about, lady. I don't know the guy. This was the water walker, by the way. And um, the third time a crowd began to gather accusingly glaring at Peter and they said no you are with that guy and Peter cursed blankety blank blank I don't know the blank I don't know what you're talking about and the Bible said when he did that a rooster crowed and he remembered that a few hours earlier Jesus had said all of y'all are going to leave me you're going to be estranged from me you're going to forget me even though he had just said, please, don't forget me. You're going to forget me. And Peter stepped out from among, because we always think, as, as our former president, George W. Bush, said in a speech a few months after his presidency, we seem to judge others on the worst thing they've ever done, and we judge ourselves on the best intentions we've ever had. God, oh, that's a line. You may not like old George W., but listen to what he said. We judge others on the worst thing they've ever done, and we judge ourselves by the best intentions we've ever had. You're all going to betray me. Peter stepped forward and said, not me. He literally had the audacity to look around and say, now I can totally understand why you think they would. But not me. And Jesus said before the rooster crows the second time, you will have. And a few hours later, people are saying, you're one of his. And he says, I have no idea what you're talking about. And the rooster crows, and his heart breaks. <laughs> Forgetting is something that we have a tendency to do. And Jesus said, I'm going to give you linchpins like communion to help you not forget. Now, what we don't have a sense of is that moment immediately developed into the next Sunday or the next month, the disciples saying, okay, here's what we've got to do. We've got to continue the Seder, the Passover, and we've got to extend out of that our own personally developed Christian sacrament, and we're going to do it with bread that needs to be unleavened out of our Jewish roots, and we're going to do it with wine, or Welch's grape juice, as the case may be. We're going to do it with the fruit of the vine. That doesn't seem to be the case because in the earliest history of the church, our extant records, which we find in the book of Acts, only say three times. I think it was three times at Jerusalem and then one time when Paul came on his mission to Troas, he met with Christians there. And all our early record of those first 20 years of the church say is that when they would get together, they would study the apostles' doctrine, they would have all things common, and they would break bread. And there's no real sense that that breaking of bread was this refined thing that we call the Eucharist. We just got a sense that Christians knew that something happened around the table, and it probably wasn't their Christianity or even their Judaism. It was just the Semitism. It was that Middle Eastern culture of hospitality that, you know what, a lot of us still share. We go to lunch with one another. We have coffee. There's something happens that unifies us in our eating. We're recognizing that we all have a need to eat and drink and we're doing that together and it brings us to a baseline. But really in the book of Acts, there's no wine, there's no bread, nobody's talking about transubstantiation and does the bread really become the flesh of Jesus or is it just 
uh, spiritually the flesh of Jesus or is it all just memorializing him and remembering back? Nobody in the book of Acts was arguing, do we do it once a month? Do we do it once a week? Do we do it once a year? Nobody was wrestling back then with many of the people in our church are alcoholics who have had years of sobriety and don't know exactly what to do to take Although our friend Ian Crone is an alco a recovering alcoholic who has been sober for years and he still takes the wine of communion, feels that he's safe there. Um, nobody was wrestling with those questions, John. They just weren't. I, I will say this, though. Communion, it was, it was supposed to be this unifying thing in the church, but almost from its earliest days, it has been... Uh, divisive in nature. We, we have entire groups of Christians today who literally have a phrase they call fencing the Lord's table. Like the Lord's table has to have a fence around it because we're protecting Jesus' table from being sullied by bad people. Isn't that an amazing idea? When Paul used the phrase the Lord's table, the only thing that we can actually think of that he must have gotten this idea from was that Jesus was always doing dinner with people. And do you remember who he was always doing dinner with? The people that the later church, Pam, decided would sully the table. He literally couldn't get away with it. One day he was sitting with those who would sully the table. They, they weren't even followers of his. The Bible says they were tax collectors and sinners and he had gone to them because he saw hunger and he was talking to them, ministering to them. And some of his fellow rabbis came by and, and they literally excoriated him and said, what are you doing sitting at the table with people like this? And, and I'd like to think that was just our, our Jewish forebear rabbis who did this, but it wasn't. Uh, Christian preachers picked it up immediately. And when Peter had eaten dinner with the Gentile people in Acts 10 and watched them receive the Holy Spirit, we picked up right where our ancestors left off and we said, no, Peter, not only do we not want to talk about them being baptized and receiving the Holy Spirit, the Bible says the leaders of the Jerusalem church looked at him and said, you shouldn't have even eaten with those people. Because we're holy and they'll taint you. And as the Pharisees were literally, talk, talk about gall. These people are sitting there and they're looking at Jesus saying, you should not be dirtying your hands or defiling your table by having these people there. Don't you, I mean, what would it have been like to have been those people? I mean, I can just hear one of them saying, uh, you know we can hear you. But they didn't care. They didn't care. And I want to I say in both of those cases, this is something that Christianity has missed. Those cases where rabbis and Pharisees upbraided Jesus for doing that, that was not representative of Judaism. That was representative of, a, that was representative of an elitism that developed as a sickness within Judaism. And it is not Judaism. At its heart, Judaism is the exact opposite of that and for Christianity to come along and act like we're the better religion that has replaced Judaism because it was into all of that that is not true we judge others on the worst thing that has ever happened in their midst and we judge ourselves on the best thing that's ever happened in our midst we do the same thing it doesn't have to do with Judaism or have to do with Christianity Christianity Phariseeism is not religiously biased Phariseeism is an insecure elitism that develops in the psyche of almost every human soul that we all have to fight. 
Jesus looked at the people who accused him of dirtying his table. And that's when, and we've often told it, I won't tell it, I've, I've told it enough, but we, Jesus then looked at them and said, can I tell you a story about a guy who had two sons? And boy, he, set, he teed it up. He said, that first son, dirty, rotten kid, left home with his inheritance, went out and lived in hog pens, spent all his money at bars, and just wrecked his life with prostitutes. And the Pharisees that were listening said, yeah, we know about those people. And then Jesus said, one day, the sad kid decided he wanted to come home. And when he came home, of course, his father received him back like he had never been gone. The kid stunk like a hog pen, but it smelled like perfume in the nostrils of the father. The kid had a lot of shame, a lot of shame. Shame, uh, as the father fell on him, the kid said, I don't deserve this. I, I don't know, maybe he had learned that in Sunday school. But the father said, yes, you do. Get a ring, get a robe, kill a fatted calf, and let's have a party. Because that's the heart of God. God's always throwing parties for those who are coming home. And Jesus said, you know, that's not the end of the story. The end of the story is that the older brother who had never gone off with prostitutes and spending his money in riotous living, he sat up on the hill pouting. And when the father went to him and said, what's wrong? He looked at him and said, I don't like the party you're throwing for these undeserve, this undeserving brother of mine. And the father looked at him and said, is that really the issue? And tears brimmed in that elder son's eyes. And he said, no. You have never thrown a party for me. And Butch, with great mercy, Jesus looked at the Pharisees and said, I love you enough that I'm not going to let your condescending, mean attitude toward these broken people throw me from what is the real need. It's not that you don't want me loving them. It's that you have never felt loved. You have never known the party of grace yourself. Because I want to tell you something. People who experience the party of grace never reserve it from other people. But people who have a scarcity mentality about grace and mercy and don't know how to give it, it's because they've never felt they fully received it themselves. And as long as you never feel like you've received it yourself, you're forever hoarding and clutching and grabbing for everything you can get because you don't believe there's enough. Paul took that idea... And interestingly, in 1 Corinthians, somewhere around 54 or 55, the early church wrote Paul a letter. Now, you've got to remember, the Gospels were written 70 through 100. So what we think are the earliest extant manuscripts of the Christian church, because they're in the beginning of the New Testament and they tell the earliest story, they're not. These were written 30 years after the Pauline letters. The earliest written record we have of the Lord's Supper is not Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. That is a church 30 to 50 years later reflecting through theological lenses. And every one of them come from a different area of the church because when you read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John's account of the Lord's Supper, all of them are different. And when you understand where they're writing from and the era, the decade they're writing from, you see their theological filters, that they're redacting history and imposing their own theology on the story. We all do that. 
That's the wonderful thing as a progressive. We are not dismayed when we understand that's a part of our historical record. We're not asking our Bible to be God, right? Our Bible is the spiritual travel diary of our ancestors that brings us into right conversations, not the drop-down word from the heavens. But Paul said this in 1 Corinthians 11, and I just wanted you to look at it on the screen with me, and I want to read through this as we set ourselves up for Wednesday night's taking of the Eucharist. We haven't had the Lord's Supper in a while around here, and some of you are missing it horribly, and others haven't even realized we haven't taken it. And for all of you together, I want us to read this because we're going to have a special time Wednesday night. And I want us to understand a little more what we're doing. First thing ever written about the Lord's Supper, at least that we have in extant form. Paul's responding to a question they had evidently about the Lord's Supper. And Paul said in verse 17, now in the following instructions, I do not commend you. Because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. How about that? Here's a question you should always ask when you come together at church. Have you come together today for the better, or have you come together today for the worse? Has anybody ever got to that point where going to church was actually making you worse, and you said, what am I doing, and you just took some time off? There's nothing wrong with that, and there may be everything right with that. If you're sitting here today, seething, getting all your buttons pushed, and you're doing it just to check off that you're supposed to go, don't. There's no need to go to church for the worse. Only go to church if it's for the better. When you come together, it's not for the better, but for the worse. He gets specific now. For to begin with, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. He started the first chapter by saying, literally in that little church of 60 to 100 people, some say they're of Apollos, some say they're of Cephas, some say they're of Paul, and some are really spiritual. They say they're of no man, they're of Jesus. It's a church of 60 people. And there's already people saying, well, that's divisions. I hear that there are divisions among you, and to some extent, I believe it. Indeed, I suppose there have to be factions among you, for only so will it become clear among you who are genuine. That's very abstract, and it's a very difficult verse to interpret. But now this one, he gets really clear. Verse 20, when you come together, it's not really to eat the Lord's Supper. Hmm. When you come together, it's not really to eat the Lord's Supper. As best we can tell, what Paul was speaking of as the Lord's Supper, in the earliest days of the church, they had not only conscripted the last part of the meal where Jesus took the bread and the wine, they had not only conscripted that and turned that into this thing called the Eucharist or the Thanksgiving, and at the end of the service, not to fill hungry bellies or to satiate thirst, they just did this little three-minute ceremony. That's not what was happening in the earliest church. The earliest church, a good portion of them were Jewish people, and they had carried over not the Passover meal, but the sense that the Eucharist should come out of a meal. So it wasn't the Passover they were doing, 
but they wanted to do a meal because what they really wanted was at the end of the meal to take remnants of the meal. See, they didn't just want a symbol. They wanted it to be birthed in something practical and real. So they had a meal, and as best we can tell, it was called the love feast. Now, we don't know that as clearly from the Scripture as we know it from empire writings, the Roman Empire. As the Roman Empire was delineating the accusations that were leveled against the early church in the latter half of the first century, the Roman Empire said of Christians, we were doing our services secretively, we were doing them in the catacombs in Rome, we were doing them privately because there was fear that we were going to be persecuted. Well, in the privatizing of our services and in the closed windows and the candlelit moments in the catacombs, we also were increasing the suspicion by privatizing. It was a vicious cycle. And the, the issues that were leveled against the early Christian church in Roman writing was that we were cannibals because they heard that we had this kind of secret handshake where we eat the flesh of our leader. We were cannibals. We were also vampires. It wasn't called vampirism then, but we were vampires because we, we, we gathered together and we drank blood. We also were incestuous because we called one another brother and sister and our incest generally per the Roman Empire happened in orgy form because we had this thing that we did down in the catacombs called the love feast. And brothers and sisters having a love feast, drinking blood and eating flesh were the accusations leveled against the church. Isn't that beautiful? <laughs> the early church had a feast. And the feast was a mix of Middle Eastern hospitality, Greco-Roman culture. I was just looking here. Uh, at a, a postscript in my good Bible, HarperCollins Bible, according to the con conventions of Greco-Roman dinner parties, the host apportioned the fare according to the status of his guest, reserving the best food and wine for his social equals and intimate friends. The whole church evidently at this time would meet in the home of a wealthy member such as Gaius, Romans 16:23. So Paul said, when you gather together for the love feast, when you gather together, it's not really to eat the Lord's Supper. For when the time comes to eat, not when the time comes to take a little piece of bread and wine, that comes later, but when the time comes to eat, this base convention of the agape, the love feast, the Lord's Supper, when you come together to eat, verse 21 says, each of you goes ahead with your own supper. It could have been that there was even an order of entry where the richest people came in first and the slaves and day laborers came in at the end. And Paul said one or both of two things is happening. The rich folk are starting to eat even before the poor folk get there or the rich folk are just eating in front of them and there is an order. And the poor are repressed and put down. When you come together, it's not really to eat the Lord's Supper, for when the time comes to eat, each of you goes ahead with your own supper. This is supposed to be the Lord's table, and you're sitting down gluttonously, and Jesus, or rather Paul said, when the time comes, you go ahead, you eat your own supper, and one goes hungry, and another becomes drunk. 
Exclamation point. What? Do you not have homes to eat and drink in? Or do you show contempt for the church of God by humiliating those who have nothing? Within 20 years of Jesus breaking bread and giving wine, within 20 years, the church felt this was an established practice we should always do. And yet within 20 years, it had degraded down to this moment where poor people were humiliated and wealthy people were gluttonous. You humiliate those who have nothing. What should I say to you? How do I even respond to this? Should I commend you? I don't. And then Paul quotes a passage of Scripture that later, it must have been around because this later, 20 to 30 to 40 to 50 years later, this would be written into what we now know as the Gospels. And Paul said, I received from the Lord what I also handed on to you. Paul received a lot of things from people. He talked about that in Galatians, but he also said after his conversion, he went, up, he went up to a city, and there in that city at Damascus, he was not received well by the Christian church, and they had to lower him in a basket over a wall because his brothers and sisters from his former life, his rabbinical life, were after him. And he went down to Arabia for a period of 3 to 14 years. And Paul says, there was a lot of things that I never received from man. But when I was down in Arabia, I received them as downloads from the Spirit of God. That's this kind of thing. And Paul said, when I was in Arabia, I didn't hear... No man taught me this. I didn't get this in Jerusalem for Peter or the brother of Jesus, James, the head of the Christian church. I got this after my conversion down in Arabia. I received it just like on the road to Damascus when the Lord smote me and I heard his voice. The Lord gave me communion, and I've handed it on to you. And this is what I was told, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took a loaf of bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, this is my body, body. What is communion? The first element of bread, this is my body. Everybody... I'm not trying to treat you like children, but just to, to hear it together. Everybody say body. Community. Body. This is my body that is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. So this is my blood. Do this, and as often as you drink it, you do it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat the bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Jesus, Paul said, gave me something. He gave me the word that when I take the bread, I am connecting myself to the body of Christ. Verse 27 of 1 Corinthians 11, he then goes on to say, Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner. He didn't say anybody's unworthy. This is not an adjective, it's an adverb. It's the way you do it. It's not who you are. That's very important, right? It's not who you are constitutionally, inherently. It's how you do things. 
I grew up my whole life with communion being, I can't take it because I'm unworthy. He never said that. He said, you are all worthy to sit at the Lord's table via the love of God and who you are as beloved children of God. But be careful when you're there at the Lord's table not to act in an unworthy manner. What is the unworthy manner that he's speaking of here? Look at this. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be answerable for the body of the Lord. Examine yourselves and only then eat the bread and drink of the cup. Whoever eats the bread, drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner, are guilty, Paul says, quote, listen, of not discerning the Lord's body. Paul so inspired himself here that by the time he moves to what we call the next chapter, the 12th chapter of Corinthians, Paul goes into a long diatribe saying, for just as the body of Christ is one and has many members, all of the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. Christ, Paul is making a theological move 20 years after the resurrection. And he's saying, listen to the progressivism. He's saying, this is where communion started. A young man took a piece of bread and said, don't forget me. A young man took a piece of bread and said, remember me. And remember the etymology of remember. Re, to do again. Member, parts of. Remember. To remember is to put scatteredness back together. That's why a few hours later when he was on the cross, the broken guy beside him reached out from his nail and said, would you remember me? It's beautiful. He wasn't just saying, recollect me in memory. A broken man was saying, put my life back together. Remember me. Paul said, I get it. A group of people lost their best friend. We wrestled through resurrections, ascensions, and births of the Spirit to reconcile ourselves to how we have Jesus back in our life. But 20 years in, progressivism, 20 years in, Paul is watching the church take communion. And he's saying, you're using the right kind of wine and you're using the right kind of bread and it's coming out of a meal and I suppose he didn't even have a problem with what they were saying when they did it. All the stuff we argue about, Paul said, that's not the problem. The problem is I'm watching you take the right wine, the right bread in the right quote-unquote religious way. But a problem is it's birthed in a context of inequity and unlove and even humiliation of the very body of Christ. And Paul has an epiphany. If you read Paul, a lot of times you feel like Paul is, confusion because, uh, is confused because he's going back and forth. He is. He writes didactively. He's talking out loud. And in 1 Corinthians 11, he said, Do you not know when you humiliate the poor person among you, when you gluttonize and live inequitably with an unequal distribution of the body of Jesus Christ and the grace of God, when you fence people out and think this table is sullied, when there are high chairs and low chairs at a table that supposedly Jesus sets at the head of, Paul said, oh my God, you are not discerning the body of Christ because discerning the body of Christ is not remembering a bronze-skinned Galilean named Jesus. Discerning the body of Christ is realizing there is a developing idea here. We are all the body of Christ. Holy cow. 
And that's why by the time he gets to the 12th chapter, he says, now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. You are members of a body. And Paul said this body needs to be remembered because we have the poor over here and the rich over here. We have the gay over here and the straight over here, the men over here and the women over here, the Jews over here and the Christians over here. We have separation and division. We have big chairs and little chairs. Paul said this is an unmembered, a demembered body. And if we're going to remember Jesus, it's not about recollecting a bronze-skinned Galilean who wore sandals around the shores of that sea. It's about recognizing every human being is the Christ. We are all the body of Christ. And Paul talks himself into a new theology and says, holy mackerel. That's why I say Christianity is progressive. What Paul is saying about the body of Christ in 54, if he would have tried to teach that to 11 apostles and disciples when they're trying to remember somebody that is so easily forgotten, they would not have understood the complexity and richness and layers of that theology. Why? Because sometimes it takes years and an accumulation of experience and Gentiles being included and Samaritans being included and our own hearts widening to move us past our own severe loveless accuracies of having to be right and hoarding and scarcity and what I want to say as Melissa and I sat on Friday and wrestled with this for hours saying what do we want to say because we know it's in our heart we love this right but there are some things about this right some fear and some fencing Chris that are just wrong and we've got to grow out of it so here's what I want to say. If at 32 AD, when Jesus said, remember me, 11 men took that rite, that sacrament, that symbol, that bread, that wine, and in that context, Brian, they did with it the best they could to appropriate its full meaning. And I totally get how in the next 40 days, when they walked on the road to Emmaus, heartbroken that Jesus was dead, laying at a tomb, and Jesus resurrected, came beside them, and they didn't even know it was him. But on that Sunday night, three days after his crucifixion, when he got to dinner with those disciples in their home, they still didn't know it was the resurrected Jesus. The Bible says, that their eyes were holding, old King James. Their eyes were fixed that they couldn't see Jesus. But watch this. But then, Dale, he took a piece of bread and he broke it. And when he broke the bread, their eyes were opened. I love my Christianity. And at the heart of Christianity is a tradition that cannot be progressively outdated or substituted or relegated. And that is, I will never get progressive enough to stop believing that when the bread is broken properly, it opens my eyes. But in 32 AD, it opened our eyes and we saw one man. By 55 AD, we opened our eyes at the breaking of bread 
and saw the body of Christ sitting beside us. Now, this is the heart of progressivism. We do not believe that at 55 AD, the slope of God's spirit leveled off and quit revealing. And I'll never forget, as I opened myself to the bread and the wine representing a body bigger than Jesus's, it represented the Pentecostals, the oneness Pentecostals taking communion with me. And then, after a few years, it started to represent the Trinitarian Pentecostals. And then after a few more years, the body of Christ began to represent evangelicals, even those who didn't speak in tongues. I remember I said to my pastor, Billy Graham does not speak with tongues, and yet look what he's done. And my pastor looked at me and said, just think what he could have done. <laughs> and then it was evangelicals, and then it was Catholics. And then I even started considering mainline, dried up, frozen, chosen Presbyterians and Episcopals. And my journey as a, my journey as a Christian is that when the bread is broken, my eyes get opened. My journey as a progressive is I have never leveled off. I have never put a limit on how my eyes can open. And it finally got past liberal Christians. And then it became other religious people, Jews and Hindus. I was still elitist because I said they were really Christians and didn't know it. And we're going to find out at Judgment Day that they were really Christians. But now, I'll close with this. People like Richard Rohr and Diana Butler Bass and Wendell Berry have so impacted my thinking that I no longer see the body of Christ as just all humanity. I see it as all things. Reading from the Center for Action and Contemplation, one of my mentors, Richard Rohr, he quotes Thomas Berry, the universe itself can be understood as the primary revelation of the divine. To that end, Richard Rohr says, the incarnation of God did not only happen in Bethlehem 2,000 years ago, that is just when some of us started taking it seriously. The incarnation actually happened approximately 13.8 billion years ago with a moment that we now call the Big Bang or the first manifestation. At the birth of our universe, God materialized and revealed who God is. Elia DeLeo writes, Human life must be traced back to the time when life was deeply one, a singularity whereby the intensity of mass energy exploded into consciousness. This singularity provides a solid basis for the inherent reverence, universal sacrality, and a spiritual ecology that transcends groups, religions, and even a species of people. St. Thomas Aquinas stated, The immense diversity and pluriformity of this creation more perfectly represents God than any one creature alone or by itself. However, for some reason, perhaps human self-absorption, 
Christians thought humans were the only creatures that God cared about, and all else, animals, plants, light, water, soil, minerals, was literally just food for our own sustenance and enjoyment. Rohr says, I do not believe that the infinitely loving source we call God would or could be so stingy and withholding. The Lord's table is now not just people sitting at it. God created millions of creatures for millions of years before Homo sapiens came along. Many of these beings are too tiny for us to see or have yet to be discovered. Some have seemingly no benefit to human life, and many, like dinosaurs, lived and died long before we did. Why do they even exist? A number of the Psalms say that creation exists to reflect and give glory to God. The Jewish people already had a kind of natural theology, it seems. God has chosen to communicate God's very self in multitudinous and diverse shapes of beauty, love, truth, and goodness, each of which manifests another facet of the divine. Christians must realize what a muddle we have gotten ourselves into by not taking incarnation and the body, the true body of God, seriously. Sally McFaig, a Christian theologian, says so powerfully, salvation is the, direct, is the direction of all of creation, and creation is the very place of salvation. All is God's place, which is our place, which is the only and every place. Finally, our very suffering now, our crowded presence in this nest that we have largely fouled, will soon be the one thing that we finally share in common. It might be the one thing that will bring us together politically and religiously. The earth and its life systems on which we all entirely depend might soon become the very thing that will convert us to a simple lifestyle, to a necessary community, and to an inherent and natural sense of the holy in all things. We all breathe the same air, drink the same water. There are no native Hindu, Jewish, Christian, or Muslim versions of the universal elements. They are exactly the same for each of us. When I drink the wine and I eat the bread, it is so much bigger than it has ever been before. And so this Wednesday night, I am not going to fearfully search my heart in hopes that God won't kill me. And I have no intention of fencing off this table because this table is the table of the Lord and the Christ is creation and all things. And when we drink the wine and eat the bread, we are reminding ourselves of our unity, our singularity, and our connection to everything in this universe. Can you say amen? amen. Let's bow in prayer. Thank you, God, for this time together to reflect and dig down deep into our faith. Thank you for the nature of progressivism, for the tradition of our religion, Christianity. And thank you for these elements that we will partake of this Wednesday evening at Ash Wednesday service. May we sense a greater oneness than we've ever known. May we sense connection, knowing that the universe outside is actually the universe within. And may creation, all of it, give God the glory and bring us to one another. We pray these things in Christ's name. And God's people said, amen. Now,